at the close of this series now, I want to remind you one last time that the, the wonderful confidence that we have that tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword and slaughter and all the groanings of our unredeemed bodies and all the frustrations of imperfect spirits, that all of this, the deep and wonderful confidence that it all works together for our good, is built upon the foundation of Romans 8, 29, and 30. And the reason that I have preached this series of messages is to make you happy and strong when you lose your health and wealth and job and spouse and child and friend and dream. The promise of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Let's pray together. Almighty God, these have been sweet and precious things in these verses that You have revealed to us of Yourself. And I pray earnestly that they might be received as the Word of God, not the Word of man. And that they might sink their roots down into the deep recesses of hearts, wrap their fibers around people and give them stability and firmness and strength in the miseries of life as well as the joys. Be pleased to exalt your sovereign grace in this hour, I pray, for the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of saints. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. I direct your attention to the last phrase of verse 30 in Romans 8. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. And I would like to ask three questions this morning and one question tonight. The three questions this morning are, one, what happens when God glorifies a human being? What does it mean? Second, who is it that will be glorified? Third, how is this process of glorification a fulfillment of the new covenant which Christ purchased and certified with His blood and which we commemorated in this meal? And the question for tonight is, what happens when believers try to hold on to the certainty of glorification and reject the doctrine of God's sovereign grace? It's a very widespread attempt in the church to do this. And the results are bad. We need to see what they are, check if they're in us, 
and follow the word. Question number one. What happens when God glorifies a human being? Three answers to that. One, a general one. He gives us a share in his glory. I get that from Romans 8.17. You want to turn back? It says, If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we might be glorified with Him. Now underline, with Him. That is, something is going to happen to us who are in Christ like what happened to Jesus when he was raised from the dead, exalted to the Father's right hand, seated on the throne, and made to be honored by every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Something like that's going to happen to you if you have been justified. We're going to be glorified with him. Or if you look at Romans 5, 2, it puts it like this. Through Christ, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in our hope of the glory of God, which I think means really two things, hope of beholding and hope of becoming like God. Beholding no longer through a dark and dirty glass like we see now, but face to face with glory 10,000 times brighter than the sun. I've told you before that there's a time of year when I crossed um, 8th Street there on the way to service at 745, where there are two suns in the sky. There's a sun in the, wet, in the uh, east, and there's a sun in the IDS tower. It is spectacular. You walk across, and you really can hardly tell that one is real and the other is a reflection. And I think about the sun. I can't look at it except for just a brief second, and it's just a little spark of the glory of God. No longer through a glass darkly, face to face, glory like you have never seen. You'll see it. It'll satisfy your soul. Almost. Something more. You've got to be it. You've got to become it. Peter said in his first letter, I not only share the sufferings of Christ, but I will be a partaker in the glory that is about to be revealed to us. It's not like seeing a parade on a television. It's like seeing a hurricane when you fly into the eye of the storm. It's going to swallow you up. It'll shoot through you. You will radiate. Isn't that what it says in verse 29? We are destined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And what is the Son of God but the lamp of His glory? It's called that in Revelation. So, that's the first answer to the question. What happens? We share the glory of God. Wonder of wonders. Second answer, and really it's just a part of the first one. When you are glorified, you will be given a new and glorious body. That's good news. The older you get, the better news it is. Now, I've seen a lot of saints die in this church. None of them almost, have died easy. There aren't easy times coming, young people. You just go around and ask a few older people, how is it when the bones are creaking and when you can hardly stand up and when eyes and ears and touch and joints begin to go? How is it 
And then you'll know how precious this dimension of glorification is. And look at Romans 8, 21 to 23. Now, I want you to see it on the authority of God's Word, not my Word. It says in verse 21, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain, now literally, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What's that? Well, read on. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travailed together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now, what's the freedom of the glory of the children of God? It's the freedom from that groaning. No more groaning over unredeemed bodies with arthritis and addictions and diseases and wheelchairs and crutches and braces and medicines. None of that anymore. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. No more groaning. Bodies redeemed. Perfected. I said in the first service that Jim Lindholm and Merlin and Reuben are going to be doing cartwheels in the kingdom with all the rest of us. And it isn't that far away. And so, brothers and sisters, when you get sick, and I don't believe in the doctrine of the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, that if you just had enough faith, God would make you well, you preach that in a nursing home. This text says we groan because our bodies are not yet redeemed. It's a tragic thing when a group of young, healthy Christians start preaching that stuff. Blind their eyes to the godly sufferers in the world. The third answer to the question what happens is that not only do we get a new body, God gives us a new spiritual beauty within. And He doesn't just give it at the end of the age. He begins to give it right now. Have you ever wondered why sanctification isn't included in this chain? Why didn't he say those whom he foreknew he predestined and those whom he predestined he called and those whom he called he justified and those whom he justified he sanctified and those whom he sanctified he glorified. That's a true statement. Why didn't he say that? Why did he leave out sanctification? The answer is, I think, he left it out because it's included in glorification. My basis for assuming that is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Verse 18. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, this is what it says. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's glorification, isn't it? If you're changed from one degree of glory to another, you're being glorified. 
So when Paul says in Romans 8.30, those whom He justified, He glorified, He doesn't just mean that we have to wait till the end for this spiritual beautification to begin. It begins now. And the process is called sanctification, if you talk about it by itself. But if you talk about it so that it includes the final perfection, it's called glorification. And it began when you were converted. The Spirit came in, notice, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He came in and He began a reclamation project on your life. You're not perfect now, but He's on the way. He's getting rid of some sins. He's establishing some new habits. He's creating a beauty in you. And that moral beauty is called holiness. And the process of its achievement is called sanctification. So there are three things that it means when God glorifies a person. One, they share His glory. Two, that includes getting a new and glorious body at the resurrection. And three, right now He begins a process of moral beautification that proceeds as we behold Christ until we meet Him face to face at our death or He comes and we're changed in the twinkling of an eye and we are perfected never to sin again. What a great day that's going to be. Second question, who are we talking about? Who is going to get glorified? The answer is right here in verse 30 of Romans 8, isn't it? Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And that's who's going to be glorified. Nobody else. Those who have been effectually called from unbelief into belief will be glorified. Now, I hope that you have got a grip on this chain and what it means. This chain in verses 29 and 30. The chain means no one who was foreknown will fail to be predestined. No one who was predestined will fail to be called. No one who was called will fail to be justified. No one who has been justified will fail to be glorified. The chain has links made of divine steel. They cannot be broken. Nobody falls out of this chain. The meaning of the chain is certainty, confidence, assurance, security. The point is this. God does not just offer salvation. He saves. You see the difference? If He only offered salvation... The chain would be in shambles. A link missing here. People falling out right and left. You shall call His name Jesus, Yahshua, because He will save His people from their sins. Not just offer them salvation. Jesus came to save, and He does it by His cross and His resurrection. The glorification of the predestined, called, and justified people of God is absolutely certain. None can be lost. There is no falling out of this chain. And those branches of Christianity and distortions of biblical doctrine that say there is no such thing as eternal security and you can't really have full assurance that you're going to heaven, shatter on Romans 8.30. For it says, those whom He justified, He most certainly 
glorified. And did you ever ask why the past tense is used for the word glorified since it's a process that's not done yet? Why didn't it say those whom he justified he will glorify? It's because in God's mind it's done. It is so certain, it is so complete for the people who have been called and justified that he simply says they've been glorified. It's done in my mind. I planned it long ago. It is finished. And so the answer to the second question is the people that we're talking about are those who have been effectually called out of a life of rebellion and unbelief who now believe and have heard the word of acquittal and justification and are therefore most definitely, infallibly, securely going to be glorified. And the last question then is, how is that a fulfillment of the new covenant promises that were purchased at Calvary and that we just commemorated in this meal? Here's another way of asking that question. What did Jesus mean when he, when he perhaps held up the chalice and said, this is the new covenant in my blood? What was he referring to? This new covenant in my blood. Well, he was referring to what Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke of in these words. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their, their husband. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it upon their hearts. Now, what's the difference between the old and new covenant? Covenant simply means oath. The oath of God to do something with his people. Well, the first oath was, I'll bless you if you obey. And the new covenant is, I'll bless you if you obey. But they broke the old covenant because the law wasn't written on their hearts. It was only written on stone on the mountain. In the new covenant, all the covenant people will obey because he's going to write it on their hearts. This is what Ezekiel says. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out of you the heart of stone and put within you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. So Hebrews says the new covenant is made on new promises, better promises. It dares to say they're better. Well, how are they better? They're better because in the old covenant, no promises of enablement were made. We were only commanded to obey and held accountable to obey. And it says in Deuteronomy... To this day, God has not given them eyes to see or ears to hear or heart to obey. But in the new covenant, he writes the law on the heart of his people. He puts his spirit within them and he causes them to walk in his statutes. Therefore, the eternal security guaranteed by the new covenant is not based on the optional character of obedience, but on the absolute assurance that God will produce obedience in those who are called and justified. The eternal security that is so clearly taught 
It is taught in verse 30. The eternal security that is so clearly taught in the words, those whom he justified will be glorified. That eternal security is not based on the fact that obedience is unnecessary. Obedience is necessary. Hebrews 5.9 says, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Obedience is necessary. So eternal security, our confidence, our assurance that we're going to heaven is not based on the removal of the necessity of obedience. It is based on the covenant oath of God that He will undertake to produce the obedience required in His people. The world of difference between that theology and what is very common in today's evangelical church, and we'll talk more about that tonight. Now, I want to close like this. I hope that at the end of this series, you will be dissatisfied with answering a Jehovah's Witness who comes to you and after talking about the Trinity and whatnot, says to you, well, you can't really know that you're going to heaven. You can't be really sure that you are going to heaven. You can hope you are, and you can stand out on the street corners and do what you're supposed to do with your magazines and try to work your way there, but you can't know. I hope that you will be dissatisfied with the answer. One time I prayed and asked Jesus into my heart, and I know I'm going to heaven. That's a not, it's not a false statement, but it grieves me. And I think it grieves the Holy Spirit that we have a book called the Bible that is thick. And people pick and choose their little Sunday school doctrines and just forget about the rest of the Bible. And the reason I think it grieves the Holy Spirit is that there are precious things given to you for your assurance. They're held out in Romans 8, 29, and 30. And, and it grieves God when His gifts are spurned. I hope you'll answer something like this. You sit them down on your living room couch and you say, look, I do know I'm going to heaven. And here's how I know. I know I'm going to heaven because God chose me before the foundation of the world for His own. And having chosen me, He predestined me for glory, to be conformed to the image of His Son and to work all things together for my good, which includes my salvation. Now, right at this point, in the first service, I went on. I'm going to step in here because my son Benjamin came up to me at the end of the service. This blessed my heart. He said, yeah, but Daddy, won't the Jehovah's Witness say, how do you know you're chosen? And you were all thinking that. He missed the answer. I, I gave the answer in the first service. He missed it because it was a little bit complicated. The answer came in my next sentence. All right, now I'm going to close the parenthesis and pick up where I left off in the first service. And he has borne witness to me of this fact by effectually calling me 
out of rebellion and unbelief and putting in my heart faith and love to Him so that I have heard in the Word of Scripture the word of acquittal and I stand just before the throne, my sins on the head of Jesus, His righteousness on my head, clothed in glory. Now, did you hear the answer to Benjamin's question? God bore witness to me of His election by effectually calling me out of unbelief and putting a love to God in my heart. Okay? Now we'll pick it up again. Here's what you keep on saying. You say to the Jehovah's Witness, and brother, as I look into the future of my life and ponder the possibility of my falling away, my confidence, my security, my assurance rests in the covenant oath of Almighty God that those whom He justified, He also glorified. Sin will not have dominion over me because I am under the rule of sovereign grace. And that grace will reign in my life through righteousness unto eternal life God the Father planned it ages ago. God the Son purchased it centuries ago. God the Holy Spirit now in the fulfillment of the covenant oath is applying it to my heart infallibly. It is He who is at work in me to will and to do His good pleasure. He who began a good work in me will complete it under the day of Christ. Brother, therefore, I know I'm going to heaven. 